All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, so this morning, we're going to go over questions 33 and 34 of the larger catechism. Uh, before we do that, let me uh, go ahead and o- uh, open us up in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, your Lord's Day, our day of rest. We pray that you would be with us through your spirit this morning as we dive into your word uh, through our catechism questions, that we may learn more of you, of your glory, and we pray that we would draw closer to you in the process. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, in question 33, you're probably looking at the question and going, uh, well, there's, uh, there's not a whole lot there. Um, and, and you're right. Let's, uh, let's read the question real quick. Was the covenant of grace always administered after one and the same manner? The covenant of grace was not always administered after the same manner, but the administration of it under the Old Testament was different from those under the New. Okay, so the short answer to this question is no, right? Um, The covenant of grace was not administered in the same manner. The Old and the New were different. Okay, now this is a pretty short answer because its goal really is to tee you up for questions 34 and 35. Now, this is not to say um, that we can't speak generally of the differences within the covenants between the Old and the New Testament. So that's what I want to do here briefly before we get into question 34. So, for instance, right, let's say you're in line at HEB, right, and someone turns around and just strikes up a, a question about covenant theology. I don't know about you, but it happens to me all the time, okay? I'm making a quick trip for the essentials, right, Shiner and Ranch. I go there for that all the time. Someone turns around and goes, you know, there's something that's really, really bugging me. Uh, I understand everything after the covenant of works is covenant of grace, right? I get that. I'm on track with that. But the, what's the big difference between the Old Testament covenant of grace and the New Testament covenant of grace? I'm struggling to understand the big picture here. Good thing I bought China, right? Okay. The way we speak to that is through the differences in glory. Okay? The differences in glory. We need to read two passages to understand this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Starting in verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with them, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, million dollar question. Who can tell me why Moses veiled his face? And there's two parts to this. Anyone know? Any thoughts? What you got? You're close. Kind of. Any other thoughts? It's good. Okay. The first part, the people are afraid. Okay, they're so stiff-necked, okay, that they can't handle the glory radiating from Moses. So it's kind of like what you were saying. You're on the right track there. The second part, and this is important, is to hide from the people that the glory of the old covenant will eventually fade away. Okay? The law has a supreme glory in itself. There's nothing wrong with the law, but it was never meant to save. So if this isn't the glory that we should be focusing on, then what is? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3. So 
starting in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. So... The same God who inscribed the Ten Commandments is the same one who brings salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Exodus text is the foundation for Paul's message here to the Corinthians. Right, now, a couple of key things here in our text. Notice verse 7. Right, Paul calls Moses' ministry a ministry of death. Right, again, not because the law was defective in any way. The moral law is perfect and valid for all time. Amen? But the law itself cannot be kept perfectly and leads to condemnation. Which is why he says the glory of the law was being brought to an end. Okay? That's why Moses veils his face. We see proof of that again in verse 13. Right? Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The glory that we are to focus on is not in the law. Right? It's not the old covenant that glory has faded away the fading glory the, i'm sorry the unfading glory of the new covenant is our focus paul makes that abundantly clear in this passage i love how he says it in verse 9 for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory it's almost like well well yeah obviously if, if the covenant that had brought death had abounding glory, then the covenant that brings life would naturally bring even greater glory, exceeding glory, right? The new covenant, the gospel brought forth by Christ has been sealed in his blood. It's a covenant of life, a ministry that brings forth righteousness. It transforms believers from one degree of glory to another. It gives believers immeasurable hope and, and, as Paul says, allows us to walk like Moses with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord. This is, this is kind of the big picture that sets the stage before we get into the details of, of each covenant. Okay, So with that, that kind of tees us up for, for question 34. Okay, <clears throat> So... I'll read the question. Let's, let's read it together, the answer together. How was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? The covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances, which did all for signify Christ then to come and were for that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith, the promised Messiah, by whom they then had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. Okay. <clears throat> I hope everyone has their covenant pants on today. Because this is where we get to take off our floaties and dive into the deep end 
of the Old Testament covenants. Our task before us this morning is how to best understand how under the Old Testament administration of the covenant, the grace was given in these covenants, right? In the Old Testament. And in order to do that, we need to appreciate the details of each covenant, okay? And that's what I want us to do. I want to go through each covenant in the Old Testament, okay? We're going to spend some time in question 34, okay? So let's dive in, okay? I don't, what I don't want to do is just go through each, each one of these um, these graces, right, promises, prophecies, sacrifices, and just read some scripture for you, okay? <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to touch on each one of these, I promise, and, and, and I'll point them out. But my goal is to show you God's grace in each covenant and walk through it, okay? I, I'm, I'm a little afraid that too many people don't rightly understand covenant theology, okay? And this, to me, seems the best place to teach it to you. Um, understanding and believing covenant theology is what takes you from, from a Calvinistic perspective and truly brings you into Reformed theology. Okay? So, let's start with our first covenant in the covenant of grace, which is... Bueller? Anybody? What's the first one? Noahic. Noahic. The Noahic covenant. Okay? So, let's kick off with some scripture. If you have your Bibles, flip to Genesis 6. Start in verse 5. Excuse me. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made man, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, let's, before we discuss this covenant, let's address the elephant in the room. And forgive me if we've discussed this already. I can't remember if we have. When Scripture says God regrets, relents, is sorry, what do we do with that language? I think, I think too many people are afraid of it, and we don't need to be afraid of that language, okay? Because it comes up in 1 Samuel 15, you know, when God says he regrets that he made Saul king. It comes up in, in Jonah 3 when he, he relents against uh, his anger against Nineveh, right? We see this come up frequently. We have it right here, right? What do we do with that? We need to know how to deal with this language, okay? Especially in the context of a major covenant like this one, right? <clears throat> I mean, are we, are we to believe that God truly messed up, Right? He feels bad, and now he needs to, to, to fix a situation? No. There's a better answer here. Okay? And we need to understand two key principles. Okay? Analogical discourse and anthropomorphic language. Okay? Analogical discourse and anthropomorphic language. Let's start with the first one. <clears throat> Analogical discourse is when we, as image bearers of God, okay, use human language to speak of God. Okay? When we as image bearers of God use human language to speak of God, but only to a limited extent, okay? <clears throat> Let me give you an example. When I say God is good and Sally is good, okay, that predicate good, okay, is neither, is used neither identically, okay, nor with any actual similarity, okay? Rather, it's being used analogically, okay, or, or in a, as an analogy, Okay? Michael Horton says this in his book, uh, Covenant and Eschatology. He says, analogically thinking then identifies certain aspects of the unknown in terms of the familiar. Okay? Using terms of the unknown, or terms of the known to speak about in terms of the familiar. Put simply, analogical discourse is when we use finite language to speak of an infinite being. Okay? when we use finite language to speak of an infinite being. Okay? Throughout the Bible, God uses comprehensible human language 
to articulate his glorious and, and, and finite uh, form. The, the scriptures are analogical discourse. That's what they are. Okay? Calvin said when God speaks in scripture, he, quote, lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. Okay? <clears throat> so when we apply this kind of knowledge to our text in Genesis, right, God is, is grieved over his creation, which back in chapter 1 we saw is very good, right? He does not want to see his creation, his image bearers like this, right? And so God has described the best way to express this in our language, to say that he regrets making man, bringing man in this situation, and it grieves him to his heart. Again, finite words to qualify an infinite being here, okay? And the, and the plan at this point is to, verse 7, blot them out which we know to be the flood, right? Now, this use of analogical discourse requires two important qualifiers, okay? This decision to blot them out and and bring the flood only denotes a change in procedure, okay? A change in procedure. It does not affect what God has eternally decreed, okay? Because from from our perspective, it kind of looks like God, you know, made man, and everything went terribly wrong. Now, now there's all this evil in the world, right? And he regrets the decision to have made him in the first place, and so now he just decides to wipe them out. Okay, well, that's, that, that's, that's not what's happening. No, the, this was the plan from the very beginning, okay? His, his eternal decree for redemption, okay? The procedure for getting there now looks different from our perspective, Okay? So, here's the second important thing with this kind of language. It does not mean that God changes. Okay? Very important. This language is still in accordance with the doctrine of divine immutability. Okay? Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Okay? At no point does God alter his eternal plan, forsake his unchanging character, nor does this situation catch him off guard in any way. Okay? All right, very good. The other term that I mentioned, right, that we need to keep in the back of our mind is anthropomorphic language, right? <clears throat> Anthropomorphism, in the case of Scripture, is when you assign human attributes to God, right? For example, the Bible routinely discusses how God has a hand or an arm, right? But, uh, we know that John 4.24 says God is spirit, right? <clears throat> we can never literally assign a hand or an arm to God. Right? The same principle is used here. It applies to God regretting in our Genesis passage. The doctrine of divine immutability proves that God does not regret in the traditional sense. Okay? Because that would inspire some form of change in God. Okay? And 1 Samuel 15.29 says, And also the glory of Israel, which would be God, will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Therefore, when... when we read in verse 6 that he regrets Moses using anthropomorphic language, okay? Along with analogical discourse. Okay, so, everyone have a, a handle on that? Clear as mud? Okay, cool, very good. Now, <clears throat> let's unlock the box that is the Noahic covenant, okay? And remember, we're going deep into the covenants in this question, okay? If we truly want to see God's grace in redemptive history, um, we need more than just a, a surface-level understanding of the covenants. Because I fear that too many people either misunderstand uh, the covenants completely or they approach it too generically. Um, don't misunderstand me. I want you to have a broad-brush understanding of the covenants, but don't stop there. Okay, it's, it's, it's not enough. Um, there's, there's more than just a, a surface-level understanding of, of covenants like this, like the Noahic covenant, Right? Um, you know, I, I think, in, at least in our circles, you know, most people know that when you come to Noah in the Noahic Covenant, yes, we all know every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. God floods the earth. He spares Noah and his family, right? And then he hangs the bow in the sky to remind his promise uh, to never destroy the earth again, okay? Yeah, we all got that. We know that. And these things are true, and they're very important. <clears throat> but it gives you a better appreciation for the grace of God and how he's working when you go a little bit deeper, when, when you go from milk to meat. OK? 
Okay? And I think that's true of all the covenants. Right? Think, think about it like this. You ever have a really good steak? I'm talking about like, you know, the kind that just melts in your mouth like butter. Right? The thick, juicy ones. You ever try to cook that steak? It's hard. Right? You got you to get, you get that perfect sear. Sometimes you got to put it in the oven and let it cook. You got to let it rest. Right? You got to know what you're doing. Right? You have a better appreciation for that steak when you try to cook it versus just show up and eat it. Okay? Now, does that mean those steaks still don't taste good when you just show up and eat them? No, they do. Right? <clears throat> but when you see the master chef behind the scenes and you understand how it was crafted, oh, it tastes, it tastes so much better. Right? Okay. That's what we're going to do here. We're going to take a peek behind the curtain of how God orchestrated the Noahic Covenant because there's, there's so many things that happen before we get to the rainbow and the, and the promise that's made there. Okay? There's so much grace to experience before we get to that point. Okay? Now, I want to highlight several elements of God's grace, and, and each of these actually come from Robertson's book, uh, Christ of the Covenant, so I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due. Um, Robertson calls them six themes. Um, I'll mention each of them, but, but I'm going to expand on them a little bit for the purposes of our class here. Now, <clears throat> again, Lord willing, we're all, we're all familiar with the basic story of, of uh, Noah. Um, I just mentioned it a little bit earlier. So let's start with the first theme here. Um, Robertson says there's a connection between God's preservation of Noah and his creation of Adam and Eve. Okay, let's take a look at Genesis 6, 9, 1 through 2. Uh, first verse in Genesis 6, 9. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, anyone who hears this for the first time, having read the Bible from the beginning up to this point, should immediately think, Wait, I've heard that before. This is what God said to Adam and Eve. Right? So in this redemptive covenant, God is repeating the blessing ordinance that he gave in creation. Look at verse 2. It says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Again, you should be going, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. This echoes the dominion language of Genesis 1. Okay, so we have be fruitful and multiply and rule, take dominion, right? The same blessing ordinances that were given in creation are repeated in this covenant with Noah. And it gets better. Look down at verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The covenant of works is connected with the covenant of Noah through the language of this image of God. Why? How do we know that? Because the concept of man being made in God's image is first stated in Genesis 1. So we have a connection in this covenant between creation and redemption. And you're going to see that connection with each covenant as we go along. <clears throat> Robertson says, this tells us that redemption is as broad as creation and includes all the facets of man's relation to the world. I, I like that because it reminds us that the church, it, it reminds us not to view the church as, as just this little thing over here in the corner that God is concerned about, right? As if, as if God is only concerned about caring and ruling for this little part of the world over here, right? No, God has great care and concern for the totality of his creation, all of the created order. The connection between creation and redemption shows us that God has concern for the whole created order. God's grace in the plan of redemption is total and complete. Okay? Number two, there's an emphasis in this covenant on particularity. On particularity, okay? <clears throat> we read previously in Genesis 6-5 that man's wickedness was qualified as great, right? Every intention was wicked, he was only evil continually. This paints a pretty clear picture, right? I don't know how you could describe total depravity any better. 
Then in verse 8, here comes Noah. Out of the magnitude of depraved humanity that's described here, God chose Noah and his family to show them grace. They alone are saved in the ark. Now, look at the beginning of verse 9. This is important. We have the phrase, these are the generations of. Okay? This indicates the beginning of another major section in the book. Okay? Moses uses this phrase ten times in Genesis, and it actually always indicates a major section in the book. Sometimes it's marked by a chapter division. Okay? Moses is telling us that our focus in Noah is actually going to begin in verse 9 right here. Okay? And if you notice, when you read Genesis, look what's said from Genesis 5.1 all the way up to that point in Genesis 6.7. We have the generation starting from Adam with all these people living a, a very long time, right? Sometimes hundreds of years, right? But what did Moses keep repeating? And he died, and he died, and he died, right? It's repeated over and over and over. Why? Was Moses just trying to fill the pages in the book? No. He's doing it on purpose. He wants us to see the connection between sin and death. We see consequences of sin over the course of hundreds of years. Except for Enoch, which is interesting. Right? He's the only one who, Genesis 5.22, walked with God. Did he die? No, Enoch didn't die. Genesis 5.24, God took him. Interesting. But you're reading about all this death and sin and corruption for a full chapter, all the way to 6-7, and then you hit this wall. But Noah found favor with God. And here's another reason that that phrase in in, uh, verse 9 is important, right? That phrase decisively separates the statement that Noah found favor with God. And then we get the affirmation that Noah was a righteous man in verse 9. Okay? In other words, Scripture says, first, Noah found favor with God, and then he's a righteous man. Okay? Why does this matter? Because it shows that God's grace to Noah did not appear because of any righteousness Noah had in himself. Right? God showed grace to Noah because of the particularity of the Lord's plan of redemption. In other words, Noah was chosen by God, not because of anything he did first, but because God sovereignly decreed to set his love upon him, period. Noah is righteous because of his faith, and it's fulfilled in his works, right? Does that sound familiar? It's only after his election that Noah is called a righteous man. And in verse 9, he walks with God, like Enoch. This phrase, by the way, this walking with God, is designed to show an ongoing intimacy with the Lord. God plucks Noah out of the mass of this wicked, depraved humanity, and he finds favor in the Lord's sight. Noah is the object of God's grace. That's what found favor means, right? This, 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 this is very significant text. Because this is the first time grace is so explicitly stated in Scripture. Yes, we've seen, we've seen examples of God's grace in, in previous passages of Scripture, right? But not like this, okay? I want you guys to see this. We, we see the riches of God's unmerited favor, even in the earliest chapters of Genesis, okay? Noah didn't deserve it, neither do we, Right? We are surrounded by the same wicked generation that Noah was, yet we find favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? It's not about deserving it. You don't deserve it. You were the wicked generation in Genesis 6-5, right? But like Noah, God is particular in his plan of redemption, and you find favor. It's not random. Jesus died for you. Jesus has your name written in the Lamb's book of life. This passage in Genesis is all about Noah receiving God's particular grace. Grace is particular. Okay? Number three. 
Robertson points out a familial structure of God's covenant. God deals with families through a representative head. Okay? Over and over in the covenant with Noah, you hear this phrase repeated. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Remember, in Genesis 6-8, we read that Noah finds favor in the sight of the Lord. Noah, singular, just Noah, right? But we read in Genesis 6-18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Okay? This is the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible. Okay? And what do we notice is going on here? Noah is the one who finds favor. Okay? Noah is the one who God makes a covenant with. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. Okay? Everything is singular up to this point, but the promise of blessing is extended not just to him. It's to his whole family. Right? There are familial implications going on here. So what? Two things we needed to mention, and they work in tandem. They work together, okay? Number one, God's saving grace is primarily experienced through families. Number two, this family received God's grace through their federal head. Now, this second one shouldn't be anything new for us, right? We talked about that extensively with Adam, and we confirmed it in the New Testament with Christ, right? What we are seeing with Noah is federal headship, okay? And that same saving grace Noah's family received, we experience through our federal head, Jesus Christ, right? But let's circle back to that first one, how God's saving grace is primarily experienced through families. God deals primarily through families. In fact, I was, I was actually made aware of a study whose statistics confirm that very truth, okay? According to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and the Lausanne Con- uh, Congress for World Evangelism, in the U.S., listen to this, in the U.S., 94% of Christians have one or both believing parents. And in the world, that number was around 90 to 94%. This tells us that families are the predominant way that God spreads the gospel and builds his church. 94% of people who said they're Christians were because they had Christian parents. That's a huge number. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. People think it's, it's this kind of gotcha moment when someone says, well, the, the only reason you were Christian is because your, your parents were Christian. Some people freeze in that moment, and I I don't understand why. Don't freeze. You look them right in the eye and say, yeah, praise God. So what? What else you got? Adults, parents, you want to advance the kingdom of God? Get married, have babies, and bring them up in the admonition and the instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the truth of God's word. Bring them up in godly, Christ-centered homes. Do family worship. Take your kids to morning and evening worship. Live a Christ-centered life before your children. Kids, boys, pick your heads up. Look at me. You have no idea what a blessing it is to be raised in a God-centered home. In a Christian family, it is only by God's grace that you have Christian parents who love you enough to pray for you, to teach you God's word, to bring you to worship, point you to Christ. Are your parents perfect? Maddie, Annabelle, close your ears. No. No, they're not. Okay? They struggle with sin too, but tonight when you go to bed, make sure you think and you thank God that you were born into believing families, okay? Thank your parents for the time to raise you in the faith. Okay, it ain't easy. All right. Again, here we see comparing Genesis six seven and Genesis six eighteen. We see federal headship. We see God saving grace through families. Okay, it's so important. Number four, we see the emphasis on preservation. Preservation. God commits Himself to preserve the present order of the world so that the work of redemption may be. 
accomplished. Flip over to Genesis, uh, Genesis 8. <clears throat> look at starting verse 20 then noah built an altar to the lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt uh, offerings on the altar and when the lord smelled the pleasing aroma the lord said in his heart i will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth neither will i ever again strike down every living creature as i have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night shall not cease Okay, now, before we move on talking about preservation, take careful note of verse 20. Noah just survived a pretty traumatic event, right? He's hungry, he's tired, probably needs to stretch, right? He's ready to get to work on starting over. But what's the first thing he does? He worships. He builds an altar and he worships. We usually come out of our trials exhausted. Right? Ready to move on to something better. But this teaches us that God delivers his people. He delivers them from their sin. He sovereignly directs their trials. And our our immediate response should always be to bend the knee and worship. Okay? To give thanks to the one true God for he is good. We're quick to pray when we're in trouble. But our knees lose callous when things are going well. Noah shows us that that should never be the case. It should never be the case. Okay, now, direct your attention to verse 22. <clears throat> he says, I'm going to go back a page here. He says, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and winter, all these things, right, they shall not cease. In other words, God says, I'm going to, I'm not, sorry, I'm not going to destroy the world again by flood. Quite the opposite, right? I'm going to keep the regular cycles of the earth. Sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, all these things are going to keep going like they're supposed to, okay? Well, why, why, does he, why does he want that? Why does he do that? To keep the earth in its present world order until the time of consummation, until judgment day. Okay, because here's the thing, God's statement, and this is interesting, this is kind of weird, right? God's statement in verse 21 almost sounds like a non sequitur, right? A non sequitur is a statement that doesn't really follow from the previous statement, right? God says, I will never again curse the ground. Great, awesome. Why, God? Because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Wait, isn't that why you flooded the earth in the first place? We might think, that because of man's persistent depravity, God would just keep flooding the earth, right? But he doesn't. God recognizes that judgment and curse isn't how you fix the sin problem, right? If the problem is going to be fixed, then the earth must be preserved from devastating judgments like a flood. Okay, that makes sense. Well, then that raises another question. Why did God do it in the first place? Did he just not know that judgment was, wasn't going to fix the problem? Maybe he was just testing the waters. No. God knew the limitations of judgment's power over sin. Okay? He floods the earth to provide a historical demonstration of the ultimate destiny of a world under sin. Hey, if you have your Bibles, flip over real quick to 2 Peter. But hold your spot in Genesis. We're going to come back there. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three, starting in verse three. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of, the, of God. And that by means of these, the, wor- the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Just like today, people back then 
believe in a final judgment. Okay? These people, they'll say, Where, where's God? Where is he? I don't see him. Okay? Everything is going along just fine, just like it always has. Right? Okay? Yeah. That's by intentional design. Okay? God is preserving the world, just like he said he was, just like he was going to do. By the way, look at verse 3. I found this kind of funny. Right? This is how I read this. Scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. Scoffers going to scoff. Right? That's the biblical way of saying haters going to hate. Right? Scoffers going to scoff. Anyway, according to this text, one of the things these scoffers conveniently overlook is the fact that God did intervene in the world. It was when he flooded it. God, in fact, intervenes whenever he desires, but this particular intervention was to demonstrate his judgment on sin. And the world perished in the process. This text in 2 Peter is to remind us to point people back to the flood, okay, and say, no, 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 look, he did intervene. Judgment on sin is coming. In fact, it's already happened once, and he showed us this is what it's going to look like. God is just preserving the world until that day. Despite our radical depravity and worthiness to incur such judgment, God extends grace, okay, and mercy to preserve the life of man here. Um, in, in Gen- back in Genesis, again, we're back there, in Genesis 8, 22. Okay. In fact, the Lord takes it one step further in his preservation. Look at Genesis uh, chapter 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, 6. Whosoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, in our modern society, people get a little squirrely when you start talking about this. Okay? <clears throat> Justice and capital punishment. Okay? Which is exactly what this references. Okay, listen carefully. God institutes capital punishment here not because human lives are not valued, but precisely because all human life is precious. Okay? And why is human life precious? Because all of mankind bears the image of the triune God. When someone wrongfully takes the life of an image bearer of God, they forfeit their right to life. Okay, again, not because human life is not precious or valued in any way, but precisely because human life is so precious, because they are image bearers of God. God shows us that he is in the business of preserving the world and the people in it. And one of the ways he helps us do that is by creating a law that makes it permissible to permanently rid our society of these wicked sinners of these vile sinners who would take the life of another human being. And God grants that authority to our civil magistrates, right, in the courts. This practice, by the way, according to verse 5 here in in, uh, chapter 9, applies to man or beast. If an animal wrongfully takes the life of another human being, that animal, too, must die. Now, this may be hard for some people to hear, but capital punishment was instituted by God. Okay? It's a good thing when it's used properly. Okay? Now, number five. Uh, we're going to run a little bit late today, but I'd really like to get through this. There is a universal aspect to this covenant. Okay? And no, we're not talking about universalism. Okay? Rather, what, what Robertson means by this is that there's language within the Noahic covenant that pertains to the totality of creation. Okay? In fact, every, uh, I'm sorry, even the language of covenant itself is used in this broad sense. Okay, look at Genesis 9, 11 through 13. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Okay, so according to this text, the covenant is between God and Noah, every living creature, and all future generations, right? Well, that's, that's quite the scope, okay? And notice not only the scope of this, but specifically that this covenant is with Noah and his children, right? Again, it's familial, right? We're going to see this come up again in the Abrahamic covenant, right? It's, it's this kind of three-tiered promise, right? Here with, uh, we have Noah, every living creature, and all future generations. 
with Abraham, it's going to be with you, your children, and all who dwell in your tents. Uh, Which includes, by the way, even Gentiles who worship the God of Abraham and who lived with him. Yes, even Gentiles were saved in the Old Testament. But more to come on that. We see this three-tiered structure also appear in Acts 2.39, where it says, For the promise is for you and for your children after you and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. But in verse 12 of Genesis, God gets even broader. Look down a little bit. The covenant is with the earth as well. And this makes sense, right? Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Here again we see that God is concerned about the totality of his creation and redemption, right? The full magnitude of his creation. This covenant is with the earth itself and every living creature for every generation. And every living creature, earth included, gets to be reminded of their membership in this covenant with his bow, the rainbow, right? And no, it's not necessary to think of Uh, rainbows first beginning at this time in creation, only that God is now using them as a covenant sign. Okay. Also, this sign, I'm going to shatter your dreams here a little bit maybe, but this sign should not be understood as God hanging up his warrior bow in the sky. Okay. I'm sure many of you heard that, and I know it makes a cool story, but really there's simply nothing to support that in the text. Okay. Instead, be focused on the scope and the magnitude of God's grace here when you look at the rainbow. Okay. This covenant is for everyone, okay? God puts his rainbow in the sky to remind all of his creation that it should put their confidence in the Lord, for he has set out to redeem all of the world. Mankind has put their faith and trust in God, for it is in him that they find their salvation. Now, all we need to do is bring more rain to Texas so we can see more rainbows. Okay. Lastly, the Noahic covenant demonstrates God's righteousness in judgment. Okay, we're going to land our plane here, promise. We see through the flood God's terrible judgment. In fact, uh, with every dark rain cloud, we see the potential for that terror to be revisited. But we are reminded by every rainbow that appears, right, following a storm, that there is grace in his judgment. God uses every storm uh, and rainbow to demonstrate his free and unmerited purpose of grace. And that's probably why I love thunderstorms so much. But the rainbow makes another appearance in Scripture Uh, I'm going to read Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. It is no accident that the throne of the righteous judge has a rainbow around it. Robertson says this, What a joy it should be to the true sharer of God's covenant grace in Christ, that the sign and seal of God's good purpose arches the place of his final disposition. So with these six themes, I think we see quite clearly God's grace at different points all throughout this covenantal process. His promise, we see his promise in redemptive history and the authority of Christ to both judge and save the world. Now, real quick, one more thing I want to mention before, before we move on to the uh, next covenant. <clears throat> Think again of this covenant sign of the rainbow. Okay? This is the first explicit teaching on covenant signs in the Bible. Okay? Covenant signs are outward expressions, uh, I'm sorry, outward representations of promises that God has made to his people which speak of inward spiritual realities. Okay? Outward representations of inward spiritual realities. Okay? So in the, in the context of confirming this covenant, God gives Noah the rainbow, right? Genesis uh, 9, verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So in one sense, yes, when we, when we see the rainbow, we as God's people are meant to look at it and have hope and, and faith and trust in God, right, of his redemptive purposes, And a reminder that he's never going to flood the earth again. But the emphasis in that verse, in Genesis 9.16, God says, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. Hmm. That's interesting. Is this because God has a lot on his mind and he forgets sometimes? No, 
right? This is to remind us that God remembers his promises to his people. Sure, it's helpful that we remember, right? But it's more important that God remembers. And when Noah and everyone else looks at that rainbow, we are confident that God remembers his covenant promises. We forget stuff all the time, but God doesn't, right? This is, this is a very powerful statement being made here. You know, the, the LGBTQ plus minus divided whatever community has, has sought to pervert this covenant uh, sign by using the rainbow as their, their battle flag, if you will, okay? The irony is, no matter what they do, it does not change the truth in God's word, and they are only heaping condemnation on their own head, okay? For in the rainbow, we see the generosity of God's grace put on display, okay? We see God withholding his hand from his righteous judgment and giving man the opportunity to repent and put their faith in the Son, right? Lastly, one other function of the covenant signs here is reassurance, okay? The rainbow does not procure God's blessing for Noah. Rather, it confirms it, okay? What God blessing for Noah was his election, okay? God's promise to him and God's redemption of him, okay? The rainbow was given to confirm those things, okay? God chose him. He made promises to him. He's preserved him. Okay, and he's going to continue to, to preserve him by never flooding the earth again. Okay? And all those promises are made to us as well. It's important that we understand these, these truths about covenant signs. Um, as we get into the Abrahamic covenant, and then again, uh, when we talk about baptism in the new covenant. So, so this is the Noahic covenant. Okay? And it's, it's filled with God's grace from beginning to end. Okay? We see the Lord's mercy, his unmerited favor, uh, and his gift of faith to his people promise of righteous judgment um, and salvation through, through the one and true living God. Um, does anybody have any questions before we wrap up the Noahic Covenant? Very good. I know we were late today. I apologize, but this was a big one to get through. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, that you have given us your sign and seal of the rainbow that we would see your uh, great grace and mercy to us, your people. And it uh, gives us great hope that you indeed remember your covenant uh, of grace to us, that you will preserve us, and that you have prolonged your judgment on sin until uh, that great day of judgment. Please be with us this morning as we go into uh, worship of you as you have called us together as your people. We pray for Pastor Miller as he brings your word to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.